Let's dive into our lesson today. As many of you know, I've been a perpetual student for the last 10 years um, up at Western, working on my um, theology degree and now working on a doctorate degree and also taking classes still at Western, and I'm taking a pastoral counseling class this, this term. And I usually like taking online classes because it gives you a little bit of flexibility. You know, typically you have the whole semester to get your online work done, and that works great in my schedule since my schedule's really pretty busy. But this term I have a professor who actually locks me out of the online portal if I don't enter into the online discussions in the proper time frame, which actually makes me kind of mad <laughs> because I, that's why I take an online class, so I have a little bit of flexibility. So if I don't meet the deadline, he locks me out, and that means I lose those points. Where's the mercy, I say? <laughs> Too much justice, not enough mercy. But you might have heard of R.C. Sproul. He was an American theologian, and he also had a class similar to my class. This is what happened to him. He was teaching 250 students, and on the first day of class, he carefully explained that there were going to be three term papers due, one at the end of September, one at the end of October, and one at the end of November. The end of September comes. Out of 250 students, 225 get their papers turned in. That's great. 25 don't. And they say, oh, we're sorry, we're having a hard time adjusting to high school and college, and we just kind of need a little bit of grace. So he's like, that's fine, I'll give you a pass this time, but next time, get your papers in. By the end of October, out of the 250 students, only 200 got their papers in. So 50 students didn't show up with their papers done. And again, he's like, what happens? And they're like, well... He said, they said, well, we had homecoming this week, and it was a really busy week, so we didn't get our papers in. And he's like, all right. He goes, but next time, I'm going to give you an F, because I told you at the beginning of the term that there was no late assignments unless a medical emergency happens, and now I've given you grace twice or given you mercy twice, and you're going to get an F next time. Guess what? The end of November, out of 250 students, only 100 turned their assignments in on time. 150 didn't have their assignments. And so when they showed up, he said, I'm sorry, you're late. You're all getting an F. And they were so outraged. They're like, what? That's totally not fair. That's totally not fair. You know, you gave mercy all these other times. And he said, yes, but if you want fair, if you want justice, then I need to take you back to my original statement, which said that every late paper would get an F. So you want justice? Fine. You get Fs on all three of your papers. And the students were so outraged. But what R.C. Sproul learned about this example, he says that they, that they had taken his mercy for granted, and they had taken advantage of it, and then when justice suddenly fell, they were unprepared for it, and they responded in shock and outrage. And I thought about how that is for us, isn't it? That we also take God's mercy for granted. We begin to depend on it. And then when judgment falls, we're like, what? Where did that come from? And we're outraged and we're shocked by it. Well, we're going to see a time as we look into the days of Noah, a time when mercy ended for most and judgment came. And I think there were many who were shocked and outraged. We're going to look at man's wickedness, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 7. Then we're going to look at Noah's righteousness, Genesis 6, verse 8 through 7, 24. And then we're going to look at God's restoration, Genesis 8, 1 through 19. And what we're going to learn is that God judges. He judges all unrighteousness, but he saves the righteous. He saves the righteous. We're going to talk more about that.
you have a Bible, open it to Genesis 6. And we're going to begin looking at verses 1 through 7. Now, if you remember last week when we left off, a new son was born to Adam and Eve, and his name was Seth. Seth actually means new beginning or appointed. So Seth was the son who was now the child of hope. He was the son that was appointed to be in the line of the promise. Remember we talk about promise? Genesis 3.15 is the promise. The promise that God is going to bring one from the seed of woman who is going to trounce the seed of Satan, the seed of the serpent. This is the promised Messiah coming. And so um, Seth is now the one who is continuing on that line. And it says, at the time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And this word Lord is Jehovah, which has a different kind of connotation. It means personal God. It means they were walking with God in a personal way. Um, Unlike the descendants of Cain, who built this humanistic society that was ostracized from God, we now have the descendants of Seth, who are walking in a relationship with God. They're having a personal relationship with him. It's so interesting, though, that much like us, the descendants of Seth were living in an increasingly godless world. Um, Each of Seth's descendants lived to be almost a 1,000 years old. Can you imagine living a 1,000 years? And during that time, though, there was this surge of wickedness. Boy, but I think about my own 58 years, how much surge of wickedness there's been in the world in just that amount of time. Can you imagine living a 1,000 years and what kind of wickedness would multiply on the earth during that huge amount of time? And, it said, and we learned that mankind was growing in self-righteousness and evil with every generation. In fact, we learned that there's a population boom on the earth, and there's an acceleration in human corruption. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. <clears throat> when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. What? (laughs) Do you read that and go, what is that all about? It's one of the most confusing verses in all of Scripture that probably most people would just pretend they just didn't read that because it's too hard to understand. (laughs) But we are a Bible study, are we not? So if we can't dive into the mysteries of Scripture here, where else can we do it? The confusion is over who. Who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of man? What is this verse talking about? Well, one thing we know for sure is whoever they are, they were not meant to marry. That's clear. Somehow God had established a boundary, and these sons of God and these daughters of man were not supposed to marry. So this was a boundary violation. And there are two views about who these separate groups were. One view says that the sons of God were the children of Seth, the godly line of descendants. And they were destined to preserve the seed, the the promise of Genesis 3.15. So for them to marry the daughters of men, likely the descendants of Cain. And also in Cain's world, people didn't just marry one wife, they married multiple wives. So that meant they would be probably gathering harems for themselves from the ungodly line. And so that was a boundary violation that would endanger the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And as we know, certainly Satan would be at work during this time to make sure that the godly line didn't continue, right? He certainly wouldn't want the godly line to continue and someday a savior to come and trounce his head. He wouldn't want that. So we see that there's a lot at work here. But the second view, which is actually a little bit more mind-blowing, but this view was the view that was established all of the early 1st and 2nd century theologians 
all agreed on this view. This was both Jews and Christians. Everyone agreed on this view until about the third century when people started to ask questions about it. But the second view is that the sons of God were actually fallen angels. They were from Satan's kingdom. They had come to earth and they had married mortal women, producing a race of giant people called Nephilim. And we know in the Old Testament that whenever the term sons of God is used, it's used to refer to angelic beings. It's a common common phrase. And it's interesting to consider this theory because if we go to the New Testament, we know that there were instances in Jesus' life where, where satanic beings inhabited human people. And um, so we know that they did inhabit at times human bodies. There are passages like Jude 6, which seems to suggest that there were times when angels abandoned their proper positions, their dwellings, and assumed human form to cohabit with mortal women, producing a giant race of people. There are other passages in 2 Peter 2, which speak of God's judgment on angels who sinned at the time of the flood. And that sin could be crossing this boundary. Um, and inhabiting humans and, and making children. Um, we don't understand it completely, but these are, there are lots of places in Scripture for you to look into this further if you want to study this on your own. Either way, the Nephilim uh, were on the earth in those days, it says in verse 4, and also afterwards. So we're going to see the Nephilim again when we get into Numbers. They are living in the land of Canaan. So somehow after the flood, they also come back to inhabit the earth. It says, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Nephilim means fallen ones. And so whatever view you hold about how they came into being, these were people who are universally regarded as wicked, ungodly, powerful, giant, evil people. They were scary The big idea to grasp here is that we have to understand what was happening in the world before the flood. The earth was being filled with wicked, godless, evil people who were violent and they were corrupt, and they soon would not only destroy themselves, they would also destroy the knowledge of God. But God is a redemptive God. He had a plan. He is a God who saves. And so in verse 6-3, we see that God immediately limits wickedness. The Lord said then, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So God is saying he's not going to contend with man forever. He's putting a limit on the years that man can live. He's not going to allow man to spiral into this kind of longevity of life that fueled this debauchery that was upon the earth. So he limits man's years to 120. And notice this is the same amount of years that it took for Noah to build the ark. It was a designated time for man to actually repent and be saved from judgment. Then the Lord evaluates man's condition, and he says in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about this. God made man in his own image. God made man with these wonderful characteristics. And he he gave man these God-given abilities. And now, because man had entered, had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because man now knows good and evil, man has used his God-given capacities to bring evil to its fullness. Jesus actually pointed out in Matthew 24 that the root of this wickedness in Noah's day was actually this indifference to God. 
that people had actually become unaware of him. They had just been living their lives completely um, numb to his presence and his existence. He says, and Jesus says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Literally, the people just couldn't care less. You know, they were doing, these were good things, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. These are all normal human things. But the thing that was wrong with it was that they were doing it all without any thought to God, completely numb, unaware, indifferent to him. So what? And I think about that, and I think, isn't that what it's like living in the Pacific Northwest? People eating and drinking and marrying and careers and education, and everybody is doing it with an indifference to God. It's like, so what if he exists? Completely unaware. But then I thought, what about us? What are we doing indifferent to God? What kinds of plans do we make and don't give God a thought? What kinds of of things do we do and decisions do we make and and ways in which we go about our life where we don't even give him a consideration? You know, I think about how often do we compartmentalize our Sunday as our God day? You know, that's where we go, we worship, we put on our, we don't even put on nice clothes. We just wear casual clothes and we show up and we sing and we're nice and that's our God day. But then we go into our workplaces or our schools or the other aspects of our life and we just compartmentalize. Well, that's not God's, I'm not paying attention to God in these capacities. That's not my God life. My God life's on Sunday or Tuesday Bible study or whatever it would be. We compartmentalize these things. You know, much of what happens today is not wicked because it's criminal. It's wicked because it's godless. It's wicked because it's apart from God. Well, God then reveals his pain. He says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. This wicked condition of man's heart brought grief to God's heart. And I just think, what a, what a contrast here. We have man's heart that is hard, indifferent, wicked, caring nothing for God. And then we have God's heart that is pained and grieved and tender and sorrowful over man's heart. What a difference we see here. And that's what happens with sin. Sin just results in grief. It results in sadness. We know that we grieve our own sins because we feel the consequences of them. I mean, probably more than grieving our sins because we realize we've sinned. We grieve them because we bear the consequences of them, and those consequences make us feel sorrowful about our sin. We grieve the sins of people that we love because we see how it breaks relationship. It hurts them, and we feel hurt because it hurts them. We grieve the sin of our world because we see how death and disease and disasters happen and how innocent people die. We just saw that this week, didn't we? Innocent people die worshiping God in a synagogue. Every day, we see how sin just wrecks havoc on our world. But most of all, God grieves, and he grieves. He sees how life was supposed to be. He sees us and all of our potential. He sees creation as he created it, and he grieves. He feels pain. Do you realize that God feels pain? We're created in his image. We feel pain. He feels pain. He grieves. We grieve. These are are emotions that we share with God. He sees the the how the beauty of his creation has been marred by sin, and he sees particularly how, how we have been marred by sin. And then God reveals his plan. He says in verse 7, 
So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. That word blot out actually carries with it a sense of washing clean. It it, it signifies a water washing. And this judgment, he says, is going to include all living things on the earth. It's a warning of judgment, however, that with an implied opportunity for repentance. Whenever God gave a warning, or whenever a prophet came and gave a warning that judgment was coming, it was a warning with the intention to elicit a response from people to say, oh, I don't want that judgment to come, therefore I'm going to turn back to you in faith. I mean, why would God announce his plans to bring this kind of a judgment 120 years before it actually came if he didn't desire that his people would turn to him and repent and walk with him in faith? Surely they're going to watch Noah build an ark for 120 years, and Noah's going to say, hey, judgment's coming, and they're going to have every opportunity to see and believe and turn back to God in repentance and faith. The question was, who was listening to him? The truth here is that God mercifully warns us to repent before coming judgment. God's mercy is that he warns us to repent before coming judgment. Part of that warning comes in the consequences of sin that we experience in our own lives. We know when we feel the effect of our own sin, it's a warning, like, "Uh uh-oh, something's not right. Sin destroys We know that sin brings grief when death happens, right? People die and our hearts are broken, our hearts are grieving. We feel the weight of sin when we lose someone we love because there's something in us that just knows that they weren't meant to leave us, that we were meant to be in relationship forever. And we know that it's sin that's brought death into the world. Sin brings grief over disobedience. You know, we know this as parents. When our children sin, it just breaks our hearts, We see how it hurts them, and it hurts us because we love them. And that can be our husbands or anyone that we love. We know how sin just brings so much pain. We know that sin brings evil into our lives. This evil that we experience, we experience it all the time. We live in a world, it seems, where there's more evil than ever before. I didn't grow up in a world that had school shootings and mall shootings and theater shootings and synagogue shootings. There's more and more violence, and we're touched by this evil, and this is sin in our world. It's increasing, it seems. We know that sin is what fuels terrorism and war. Sin is what drives people to want to power over other people or kill their own people like genocide or um, just for the sake of power or wanting to generate fear. We know that sin is what motivates people to build bombs and put them in packages and deliver them to important people, which also happened this week in our country. I mean, this is sin, right? This is evil in the human heart that's trying to damage and hurt and destroy. It's what sin does. And we know that our planet is groaning because of the sin. It's groaning for redemption. When we see devastating hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes and forest fire, it's because the world is out of joint because of sin. And these things destroy life. They destroy all that is beautiful and good. The consequences of sin, though, are a warning to us. It's listen, wake up, pay attention. Sin is devastating, and it brings judgment, and it's a warning for us to turn back to God in faith, to repent. You know, God is so merciful towards us. He is so patient. He is so longing for us to listen and pay attention and return to him. It talks about this in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. 
But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Have you experienced God's patience towards you in your life? I sure have. Have you experienced that patience in a way that has turned you back to him in repentance and faith? But let me ask you this. In what ways are you still indifferent to God? In what ways are you still living your life unaware? Not paying attention to that still small voice, that whisper that's calling you to him to come, to run into his arms, to receive the forgiveness that he offers you, to be embraced by his mercy and his grace. The thing is, God is coming back to judge the world. The judgment in Noah happened, and we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back in judgment. He's coming back to judge. And his desire is that we're not caught by surprise. His desire is that we're prepared and we're ready and we're eagerly waiting his return and that we, we only can be prepared by receiving his mercy and his grace through forgiveness in a relationship with him. In Christ, we are saved. We're saved not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And we are counted as righteous because of Christ. And now we're going to look at Noah, who also was counted as righteous. Let's look at Noah in Genesis 8, 6, 8. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's interesting, Noah found favor, because grace means unmerited favor. So we could say Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah wasn't without sin. He wasn't sinless, so that's not what this means. He too deserved judgment for his sins. But the only way that someone can be saved from God's wrath is by God's grace and Bestowing grace is how God responds to saving faith. When, when we express faith and belief in God, he bestows grace, unmerited favor towards us. In fact, we go on, we see that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, that Noah walked with God. So God bestowed grace upon Noah because he was righteous and blameless. But let's talk about what that really means. Righteous describes his standing before God. So Noah was in a right relationship with God. He was in right standing with God. So that's why he was righteous. Um, it meant that he walked with God. He belonged to God. He obeyed God's commands over and over again, we read. And Noah did all that God commanded. When God spoke, Noah did it. They were in a right relationship with each other. He wasn't righteous, though, because of his works. That wasn't why he was righteous. Not because he just did everything that God said. But the reason he did everything that God said was because of this relationship he had with God. And so he obeyed God because he believed God. And so those righteous works flowed out of his right standing, this right relationship that he had. Now, the word blameless describes Noah's conduct before people. So righteous is his conduct, is his relationship before God. And blameless is his relationship before other people. So in other words, Noah's living against the backdrop of this really corrupt society, but blameless means that his neighbors could find no fault in him. It wasn't that he was sinless, but that he was blameless among his culture. He didn't succumb to the fallacies of his culture. He remained focused on God and what God was asking him to do throughout. 
But the earth was corrupt and violent at this time. It says in verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Imagine how hard it would have been for Noah to resist the influences of his culture at this time. I mean, think of how hard it is for us just to keep our minds on Scripture and on a biblical way of living against the backdrop of our culture, which is screaming everything but God to us. And for him, living in an even more corrupt time, imagine how difficult that would have been. Are you and I blameless in our culture? Can people look at us and find fault in our behaviors? Are we just like everyone else, or do we stand apart? Do, we, do our lives reflect our relationship with God? Well, then God instructs Noah to build an ark. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Do you notice how God gave such specific instructions as we go through this chapter of exactly how to make this ark? It's amazing. And then, of course, what's even more amazing is that Noah did it. He did all that God commanded him to do. Now, think about this. Noah was likely alone at this time. He, his sons were born when he was 500 years old, and the flood came when he was 600 years old. So imagine that for the first 20 years, it seems, he was completely alone building the ark before he had sons. And then maybe, in, maybe at year 35, his sons were 15. They were old enough maybe to begin to help him with the ark. But so most of this time, he's alone. It takes him 120 years to build this boat. But he listens to God. He does exactly as God tells him. In fact, we know that the boat was about the length of uh, one and a half football fields. It was... Um, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. It had three decks, and it had a huge door. It could hold 500 railroad cars, cars of livestock and 125,000 animals. That's amazing. Um, this is the, let's go back for a slide. This is the Ark Encounter. How many of you have been to the Ark Encounter? I haven't been there, so several of you have. Um, so the Ark Encounter is in Kentucky, and so some people got together and they built the Ark exactly to the specifications of Scripture. You can go and visit it. It's like a, a, a museum. And there's some stuff online. It was really fascinating to see how they built this. And then you can show the inside. It's not a great picture of the inside, but you can kind of see where the animals might have been kept. And the whole inside is a museum devoted to Noah's Ark. Pretty amazing. But I want you to think about the mockery and the pressure that Noah must have felt as he's building this boat. Surely people thought he was crazy. It's likely that had never rained on the earth before. So Noah's building a boat in the middle of dry land. There's no water. He's building a boat. It's never rained. People surely would have scoffed at him. They would have thought, what are you doing? You're absolutely crazy. Um, people would have judged him. He would have been telling people the warning, like, a flood is coming. Repent and return to faith in God. And he's building this boat. They must have thought he was completely insane. But then I think about us. Don't people scoff at us because on Tuesdays we go to Bible study or we go to church on Sunday? Or don't they sometimes ridicule us? If you tell your friends that you believe in the Genesis account of creation, don't they think you're crazy? They tell you, oh, it's all just a myth. It's not real history. They, 
you're almost nervous to tell them that you actually believe the Genesis account of creation? Or do people look at you like that you're, you're nuts when you tell them that God has answered a prayer in your life or this is what God is doing in your life? They look at us like we're cuckoo. And I'm sure it was even worse for Noah. He's building a boat. Well, God's judgment then comes, and in chapter 7, God then begins to tell um, Noah and his family that they're to gather this, these animals together and um, go into the ark. He tells them the rain is going to come, and it's going to begin in seven days. It's going to last 40 days and 40 nights. It's going to wipe out every living creature on the earth. And then I love verse 5, chapter 7 says, and, God did as the, and Noah did as God commanded he just did everything God said. What would our lives be like if we did everything God said? Wow. Noah and his family, they did it. They most likely gathered food. They made a lot of the final preparations. And then seven days later, the floodwaters came. And this is what verse 11 says. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the seventh, second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. What happened? We don't know. Some say it was an earthquake that er erupted, and it caused such gigantic tidal waves that the ocean just flooded over all the earth. Most people believe that there was some sort of a canopy in the early days of creation that there was a canopy around the earth that watered the earth through a mist and that there actually had never been rain before, and that in some way this canopy broke open and rain started to fall upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 16 says, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord closed the doors. We don't know how he did that exactly. Did he do it with a wind? Did he do it just by his power? The important thing is that Noah was shut in by God and he couldn't get out and no one could get in. He was completely safe in a place of refuge. It's also important to know this was not a local flood. This was a global, this was a planet-wide flood. After 40 days, the rain stopped, though it says that the water continued to rise for another 110 days, reaching its peak at 150 days. And then it says the ark rested on Mount Ararat, it then took another 150 days for the water to recede. And so from the day that God shut them in to the day they were out, they were in the ark for one year and 10 days. In that process, they say the earth was covered completely with water, covering all the mountains of up to 20, more than 20 feet. And three times we're told that every living thing perished. Look at verse 21. It said, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. The truth is that by grace, God saves those who take his provision of refuge. By grace, God saves those who take his provision of refuge. By grace, God saved Noah and his family through a provision of refuge, which was the ark. By grace, God saves you and me through a provision of refuge, which is his son, Jesus Christ. 
The ark was a foreshadow of the refuge that would be found in Jesus today. When judgment comes again, there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, we have forgiveness from our sins. No judgment. In Jesus, we have eternal life. We have eternal safety. In Jesus, we have protection. In Jesus, we have salvation from punishment and final judgment that will come by fire, as the Bible tells us. In Jesus, we have security. Once we accept Jesus as our Savior, he shuts us into Christ, seals us with his Holy Spirit, and keeps us safe and protected for all eternity. We never see judgment. Are you safe? Have you accepted the provision of refuge that God has provided in his son, Jesus Christ? Are you in Christ? And therefore, no condemnation will come to you. God has provided this place of refuge and safety for us in Christ. And when we accept him as our Savior, by his grace, we are spared from God's wrath. And we will never face judgment. Something we don't talk a lot about. But it's why our salvation is so important. If we don't understand what is due to us and our world because of sin, if we don't understand the ravages of sin, death, destruction, evil, then we will never fully appreciate what we've been saved from in Christ. Let's go on and see now the restoration that God provides. Finally, in chapter 8, it says, the flood subsides, yay, and we begin to hear language that actually reminds us of Genesis 1. It's like there's a new creation spouting forth. The waters abated, dry land appeared, foliage grew, man began to inhabit the earth again. Verse 8, it's chapter 8, verse 1, it says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. Of course, God didn't forget Noah. It's not that he remembered because he forgot. He remembered in that he is beginning to act again on the part of another person. That's what remembered means. It implies action on God's part. And so he remembered his covenant with Adam, with Adam, with Noah, to take care of him, to care for his family. And so he intervenes in the flood. It's, you know, it's comforting to know that God never forgets or forsakes his people. Um, he, his character is to be faithful and I love the fact that because God is perfect, um, he can't change for the better. He can't become better than he already is. And because he is holy, he can't become worse than he already is. He is perfect just the way he is. We can always depend on his faithfulness no matter what our circumstances or how we feel. He is always faithful. And he was faithful to Noah. God then renews his world. When the waters receded, the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And this is modern-day Turkey. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that at the end. Um, Noah then gathers out data. So he sends a raven out, and he's looking for data, how, what's happening. And then he sends a dove out, and the dove brings back the branch of an olive tree, which is significant because that was a sign of peace, a universal sign of peace. So there's peace on the earth now. And then even though the waters had dried up and the earth um, was completely dry, notice that Noah waited for the Lord's instructions. He gathered information, but he actually didn't make a move until the Lord told him what to do. I thought of what a great example that is for us. 
Many times in our life, we, we face big decisions. Noah sent the raven out, and the raven didn't come back because it fed on carcasses. Noah sent out three doves, and each one brought back a little bit more information. But Noah didn't make a decision to move until God told him. And I think about for us, sometimes we face really big things in our life. What a grand example Noah is that we can use all of our God-given abilities and creativity to go and gather data points to make our decisions, and then we can wait upon the Lord to direct our path. Trust in him that he will give us instructions about which way to go, what to do. Well, then God calls Noah out of the ark. Then he says to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of flesh, the birds, the animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Doesn't it remind you now of Genesis 2? Now they're going out, they're filling the earth, and they're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Seems like we're right back to where we started. Hebrews 11.7 says this about Noah's faith. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. When Noah then departed the ark, he brought those clean animals that he had put on instruments of offering and worship, and he built an altar to God, and he worshiped God. Can you imagine what that worship would have been like after all that he had been through? The truth is that God is pleased when we respond to him in faith. He's pleased when we respond to him, and he sees our hearts. When we respond to God in faith, it brings him pleasure. I think one of the things we struggle with in our modern day is that we have made God into our own image. We have made him so nice, so safe. And so when we look at God in some of these early stories, which it's the same God, but when we, when we look at God in, these, in times of judgment, we cringe a little bit. We're like, oh, that's not my nice friend who's sitting right here next to me all day long, my buddy. That's God, holy, righteous God. And we have such a low view of him that when we see him as he is, it unnerves us a little bit, as it should. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It will be a day when we go, oh, I had no idea. This is who you really are. And so... These, this is so important that we know the fullness of God's character. He is the creator of the world. It is his prerogative to purge the world of evil. And aren't you glad that he, there's justice against evil in the world? He is the only one who sees the human heart. He's the only one who sees how it bears upon his creation. But God also responds to people who believe and respond to him in faith. Throughout history, whenever people turned to him in faith, he welcomed them, and he walked with them, and he said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. God always responds when we respond to him in faith. 
God was pleased with Noah. In fact, Noah walked with God by faith when everyone else in the world was ignoring him and disobeying him. And then Noah had faith to work for God. He actually built the ark. He was witnessing to his whole generation about God as he was building this ark. He was doing exactly as God had told him to do, standing alone in his faith for God for many, many years. When the flood was over, then Noah exercised faith to wait on God before leaving the earth, leaving the ark. How does that characterize your life? Are you walking with God in your daily life? Talking with him, spending time with him, conversing with him, reading his word, listening to him, engaging with him. How does your life stand out against the backdrop of our culture? Is there a difference between your life and the life of your friends and neighbors who don't know him? Do you experience God's peace and his presence? Does your lifestyle respect obedience to him and to his word? What work has God given to do for, for you to do for him? Are you doing that work with excellence and pre precision? If you don't, join a women's service team. Become part of the work that God is doing here just in the community of women at River West. Um, are you speaking to others as you are engaging in, your, in our community? When faced with a difficult decision, do you wait on God? Do you do all that you can to gather, direct, to gather information and then lay it before him in prayer and say, God, show me which way shall I go? What decision shall I make? Do you bring him into that? Do you wait for him to show you the way? The thing I love most about this is that this, is, this isn't a mythology. This is history. In fact, in, in the 1980s, they, a team of archaeologists thought that they had discovered Noah's Ark resting on Mount Ararat. But in 2010, it became an official archaeological discovery um, you can show the slide. Um, this is on Mount Ararat. Do you see the shape of the ship there on the foothills? The arrow points to where they believe the ship, the boat, actually landed at the top of the mountain. Go back just a second. Adam, thanks. So the arrow at the top shows where they feel like the ark actually officially landed. And then um, it slid, and it got caught on a limestone rock, which is penetrating right through the middle there. And archaeologists found this in, in the 1980s, um, but there was so much dirt piled up along the side, they couldn't be sure. And then an earthquake happened, and the dirt kind of fell away from the sides, and they were able to go in. They've got metal detectors. They've pulled out metal pieces. They've seen how the panels were all put together. You can go back now. And the most amazing thing is it measures exactly what the Bible said would be the dimensions of the ark. So it's so amazing. This is history. It's his story, written in scripture for us to believe, to have faith, to take his provision of refuge in his son, Jesus Christ, to not fear judgment, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but just to believe that God has made a way for us to be in relationship with him and to be recipients of his grace and mercy in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you. This is one amazing story from Genesis to Revelation, pointing to Christ. And I just thank you for what we learn about your character. Lord, you are holy. You are God. I'm so thankful that evil will not run rampant on this earth, but there will be a day of justice, Lord. I'm so thankful for the day when it comes when we'll be in your presence and there'll be no more tears and no more sorrow, no more death. I look forward to that with great hope and anticipation. And I'm just so thankful for what you're teaching us about your character, Lord. You are merciful 
and gracious and slow to anger and patient, but you will judge sin, and rightly so. So, Lord, help us to know you more deeply and to love you more dearly. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.